I want to read you a, a, a tweet I saw, uh, tweeted on April 30th. Huge news. We pray it's so accurate. That's that's how they put it. Between Monday, 2nd of May and Thursday, 5th of May, there is expected to be a removal of Joe Biden and a return of Trump to the U.S. presidency. This is big. And then uh, it's cited to just a uh, little dash. It says high level. So the source is high level. Now, I will say I'm starting to get a bit nervous because it is we are recording this on Thursday, May the 5th. It's almost 9 p.m. And I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I haven't checked the news. We were watching a movie, so I haven't checked the, the news in the last uh, hour. But last time I checked, you know, uh, the foul Joe Brandon is still president. Where are you reading this from? Well, I told you the source is high level. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a tweet. It's one of these. Uh, it's one of these Q <laughs> people. You know, they, it's like someone has Q in their bio. It had like you know thousands of retweets or whatever. And uh, I guess this is something that's been happening with the Q people. I mean, on and off since the whole thing started, right? Where like the, you know the prophecy just like fails over and over again. It, like one of the first big times it failed was in the 2018 midterms when the Democrats took back the House. Um, you know, last year when we talked about that. Uh, that documentary by uh, by Colin Hoback, one of the best things made about QAnon. You know, there's a scene because uh, he got access to a lot of Q hardcore people, like the really diehard, you know, Q influencers and stuff. And there's this footage where they're watching the 2018 midterms come in and they're all like really upset, like, oh, this isn't supposed to happen. And then, of course, what they then start to do is figure out how to rationalize it. Um, and they're like, well, I mean, you know, you have to trust the plan. So this is actually all part of the plan. And the Republicans still control the Senate. So actually, I don't know, they draw some kind of accelerationist narrative about that, about how that's actually going to like bring the storm ever closer. But then, of course, the big one prophecy fails moment is when, you know, they're all sitting around after January 6th. You know, the storm has seemed to come then and that's quickly receded. And then they're all watching. And, you know, I talked to Will Summer about this uh, last year, you know, the the Daily Beast, you know, QAnon expert, you know, the kind of greatest living scholar of, of QAnon. And he said, I mean, they were all sitting around watching the, the Biden inauguration and being like, all right, you know, rubbing their hands together like any minute now. Like they were watching it and they were like, okay, the, the helicopters are going to swoop in. They're going to lock up all the all the pedophile Democrats, you know, the storms are coming. And then again, you know, didn't didn't happen. And what Will said was, well, you know, it was pretty upsetting for a lot of them. But then within a, within a few hours, you know, they just figured out how to once again trust the plan. You know, it was uh, all of a sudden it became stuff like, well, actually, you know, the deep state is so powerful. You know, the 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 evil cabal that Trump's fighting is so big and powerful. Like he wasn't going to do this in one term. And actually, the storm is coming. You know, this summer. So the, for a while, that was the thing, right? It was like, well, this summer actually, there's going to be a big moment where Trump returns to power. And I mean, I haven't. Really Really followed it since then. And my sense is that like, you know, QAnon has, has kind of dissipated into this kind of sprawling network of like competing little franchises and, you know, sects and stuff. Some of which I think is like only tangentially related to like anything to do with Donald Trump or any kind of like globalist cabal. Like I think some of it is literally people attaching like their yoga instruction franchise to like the wider Q brand or whatever. But I guess they're I guess they're still doing this. Uh, anyway, we'll we'll check in. You know, there's still a few hours left in the day. We can check in when we're done recording to see if Joe Biden's still president. I have my doubts. See, it's much better to just be on the left because when you fail on the left, when things don't go according <laughs> to plan on the left. You just have a simple one-size-fits-all explanation, which is that, well, this is just part of a greater history of struggle and failure. And then eventually, eventually at some point you win. And it's just all the same failure every time. 
Anyway, welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here, as always, with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we got a we got a banger of a movie to talk about this week. One that's been a long time coming. But before we get to that, I think there's uh, something that's been weighing heavily on your mind. Yeah, about two or three weeks ago, when it all started, I said, "Why would anybody pay attention to this? Why would anybody care about this? This is a sick spectacle. Nobody should look at this." <laughs> and now, and now here I am obsessed with the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, having just watched it for hours at this point, having sat riveted to the testimony of these two people. uh, I feel like I'm on the jury now. I'm an expert in this case. Obviously, I'm not very proud of this. This is a sick spectacle. You know, Team Depp has rested its case. Now it's Team Heard's chance. I've been glued to the Amber Heard testimony this week. I want to try to explain to you and the listeners and maybe to my God and to myself as well why it is that I'm focusing on this so much. And yeah, this is this is confession time because I, I can't relate to this at all. I need you to explain this for me. Well, first of all, it's fascinating that this is allegedly a trial about defamation. She implied that he had abused her in an op-ed and he's suing on the grounds that this was defamatory and it's cost him all of this work, all this money. Trial is 90 percent not that. It's 98% two people litigating a relationship that they had almost a decade ago at this point. It's 98% playing audio of ugly, toxic arguments they had about canceling plans on each other, and then them saying, see, I was the reasonable one in this exchange. And anybody who's in a relationship can can relate to that. Uh <laughs> But there's so much about it that's fascinating. I think more than anything, what's fascinated me is it's another example of what wealth and fame can do to a man. Clearly, he thought it would be a good idea. Having already lost a libel trial in the UK, he thought, well, listen, I got to save my reputation. And the way to do it is to do it in the US, do it in a state where they televise it. And then I'm going to get in there and and explain myself to the American public. And I'm going to play hours and hours of audio of us yelling swear words at each other and show one one horrible text message after another, and then through my charisma, uh, America will love me again. And it's crazy when you've been that famous and that rich for that long and surrounded by that many yes men that you get to the point where you think, this is good for me. Right, I should I should bear this in public and that's going to be, you know, to my to my benefit. But also any any follower of Johnny Depp's career and and who isn't? We all live in the world. We've all had this man uh pushed down our throats for many years. We we all lived through Mordecai mania, you know, <laughs> which we is also... still going in my head. <laughs> We all know that he was on on a downturn, as so often happens to stars of a certain age, a certain vintage. People get tired of them. You can't stay on top forever. So to some degree, you're watching a man's midlife crisis. You're watching a man acting out about his own obsolescence, because it is hard to give up being the biggest movie star in the world. It's hard to give up. I was hearing in the testimony today, he had like 10 properties in L.A., 10 properties in LA. It's like he had apartments and he had a couple of different mansions in LA alone. I mean, I think it should be easy to give up some of those mansions, but something happens when you have that much money. Two mansions isn't enough. And then going back to two mansions isn't enough. I mean, lifestyle creep. But so is your is your takeaway from all of this that, you know, the result of the trial, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm talking here purely about the, the PR fallout as opposed to any details that emerge about what actually happened. But is your takeaway regarding the result of the trial, you know, as a public spectacle that it's just sort of scorched earth for the two of them? Because I mean, my impression is certainly being, you know, I haven't followed it really at all. But my impression is that from just kind of anecdotally and on social media is that Johnny Depp actually has had some success in, in kind of popularizing his narrative about uh, what happened. 
happened. I definitely think it's scorched earth on his part. I definitely think it's not even because he, he faces an uphill battle in winning this trial. He's already lost the libel trial in the UK. Clearly, this is about like dragging this ex-partner who he carries so much hate in his heart for through unbearable scrutiny, as well as through, you know, the enormous financial strain that it probably takes to wage so many of these court battles over so many years, uh, as well as, yes, to reverse the tide of public opinion. It's been fascinating to watch, too, because it is like a genuinely sick spectacle. It's sick how because it's televised and because so many people are watching a trial who have never seen a trial before, so many people who are so young who also like grew up with this man like like people in their early 20s and their late teens who grew up watching him in the pirates movies like they have no experience with what a trial actually looks like and they have this enormous bias just for him as as an icon and so there's this whole online culture that's emerged like hundreds of youtube videos with millions of views that are like johnny depp owns prosecuting attorney it's it's like evil and horrible and like i can't i can't stop looking at it well normally will is our master of kind of overly literal segues on this show but i'm going to attempt one speaking of six spectacles and living in public uh, we watched a little movie this week called the truman show that's right folks it's a movie that's been requested uh, over and over again by uh, lots of you lots of our listeners really since shortly after the show started i mean i think really since 2017 and i don't think either of us had seen it uh, really since it had come out it was one of those things that i knew we were going to do at some point but it almost felt you know too cliche a topic to take on well in light of that i'm very happy to say that uh, having just sat through the truman show for the first time in more than 20 years. I did not like it very much or find it very profound, but I did find it uh, to be a pretty perfect subject for our podcast. So let's get into it. They imprisoned the child. Truman, that's off limits. What's over there? They created a lie. Kill the son. They controlled a life. I'm Truman Burbank. I'm not allowed to talk to you. And they called it. I've been your best friend since we were seven years old, Truman. The last thing I'd ever do is lie to you. Entertainment. Now, going close. <laughs> I think I'm mixed up in something. Everybody seems to be in on it. He's not a performer. He's a prisoner. Look at what you've done to him. Don't tell me what's happening. I'll report you. It's the movie Newsweek calls the number one film of the summer. He's gone. One of the all-time great films. Give me some lightning. An incredible movie. Die in front of a live audience. He was born in front of a live audience. Jim Carrey is a revelation. <laughs> it's the movie of the decade. <laughs> the Truman Show, rated PG, June 5th, everywhere. Well, I'll just put on the record, first of all, what I thought of the movie. I thought it was smoking. <laughs> That's right, folks. If you've been living under a rock for 25 years or so and don't know what the movie is about, it stars James Carey, Ontario's <laughs> own, as Truman Burbank. An everyman, a man in a normal marriage with a normal middle-class life, works as an insurance salesman who, it turns out, is the subject of the world's most ambitious experiment in reality television. His entire town, his entire life is staged. It's captured with 5,000 cameras, and it all exists inside this gigantic dome high up in the Hollywood Hills. And it's all presided over by the puppet master, Ed Harris, playing a sort of, I don't know, Walt Disney-like figure. Yeah, he's he's the demiurge. And much like uh, Plato's caveman, <laughs> uh, Truman starts to realize that those shadows on the wall uh, are, are his own shadow. Uh, I, sorry, it's been a while 
while since I read that exactly what the metaphor was. And then he, he looks over to the other side of the cave and he sees the sunlight shining in. So I feel like before we get into the movie in a more granular way, I think it's impossible to talk about this movie without talking about its reputation, because I really think this movie exists as this kind of major cultural touchstone, even though my impression is that very few people have actually watched it for about 20 years. Well, yeah, you say the reputation, and I'm I'm genuinely not sure what the reputation is. Everyone knows the Truman Show. People refer to the Truman Show. Truman Show is a signifier. I don't think it has a bad reputation, but you never hear, I never hear people say, oh yeah, the Truman Show, that's a, that's a great movie. I watch that all the time. Well, I think it has a reputation for being quite prescient, and I think it's actually managed to sustain that reputation over several different cultural cycles. I think at the time it was very much received as, you know, this prescient statement about the emerging, you know, genre of reality television and, you know, was kind of calling forward to, you know, a sick world that was uh, that was then coming into being. As well as just kind of like couch potato culture in general, people living vicariously through the tube. That's a kind of, you know, lazy and generic complaint about culture that's been made since, I mean, since TV and mass media were created, really. And I think it was made two years earlier in a little movie called The Cable Guy, also starring Jim <laughs> <laughs> but the Truman Show, I think, has also carried its reputation for prescience into, uh, you know, the era of reality TV. Here's a here's a passage I found that I think is kind of emblematic of that reputation. I'm not going to name the writer because there's nothing wrong with the piece. I think it's just emblematic of uh, kind of where the movie sits in people's heads. In real life, here in 2018, we're all the stars of our own personalized, algorithmic Truman shows. Facebook titillates us with finely tuned updates. Google answers every conceivable question. Apple swaddles us in their impeccably designed walled garden. Amazon anticipates our every whim. Netflix keeps us happily entertained. Uber and Lyft whisk us between Airbnbs with unparalleled efficiency and precision. In 2018, there was also a big write-up. I guess this was the anniversary of the movie. Uh, it's 20th anniversary in Vanity Fair. Uh, it was called 20 Years Later, Everything is the Truman Show. That's what it means to be a freelance culture writer, by the way. <laughs> what you're doing is you're looking at the release calendar from 20 years or 25 years ago, and you're saying, oh, um, Shrek came out 20 years ago this week. Better pitch something about... Uh, pitch. What, is, what does Shrek mean in Trump's America? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And again, look, I don't want to pick on this piece specifically. I think it's just emblematic of the reputation of The Truman Show, which I think we need to talk about uh, before we talk about the movie, because I think when it comes to the movie itself, uh, we didn't find that there was actually an awful lot there. Just want to read from the beginning of this piece. Two decades ago, The Truman Show seemed preposterous. We would laugh about how unrealistic some of it seemed, said co-star Laura Linney, remembering conversations the cast and crew would have on the film's seaside Florida set. We couldn't quite believe that someone would want to tape themselves so that people could tune in and watch what was considered the time to be mundane and see that as entertainment. Wait a minute, Truman didn't <laughs> want to tape himself. Well, Laura Linney's I, getting the plot wrong. Let's, let's bookmark that because I have more, definitely have more to say on that. By no means did I think this movie was going to be prescient, agreed Sherry Lansing, who oversaw the production oh, over give, 200 give films. Give me a break. <laughs> yes, you did. Uh, during her tenure uh, as CEO of Paramount, that suddenly we were all going to have these reality shows, the Kardashians, the real housewives. When I watch reality television and people who live in front of the camera, there are many now who do, I wonder how much of this is real. How much of it is just because they're in front of the camera? Do they really know themselves? But every time I watch one, I think of Truman. Screenwriter Andrew Nichol echoed her. When you know there is a camera, there is no reality, he said. In that respect, Truman Burbank is the only genuine reality star. Okay, well, he at least understands the plot of the movie. <laughs> 
The intricate fable brought to life by Oscar-nominated filmmaker Peter Weir, who, by the way, we talked about a, a, a much superior Peter Weir film just a few episodes ago, Picnic at Hanging Rock. The intricate fable centers on Truman, an upbeat man played by Jim Carrey who gradually realizes that his entire life is an elaborately constructed ruse. Now, the piece carries on a bit. Uh, there's a little bit more summary just kind of lying ahead, which we'll get into what happens in the movie in a second. But my favorite part of this piece is uh, is the comment they got from Jim Carrey himself. Okay, buckle up. I mean, this is a really serious intellectual <laughs> his, coming up. <laughs> his interpretation of the movie is absolutely incredible. When Carrey read the script for The Truman Show in the mid-90s, he was living a surreal experience that in some ways mirrored that of the movie's main character. Well, yeah, if it was the exact opposite experience, like if you were a guy who wanted to be in front of cameras. For a guy, if you were a guy who literally shot to fame because... Because you, you voluntarily went on TV. You had an irresistible compulsion to point your butt into a camera and talk out of it. The Canadian-born actor had recently shot onto the A-list thanks to the 1994 movie star-making trifective Ace Ventura Pet detective dumb and dumber in the mask did those all really come out in 1994 all the same year what wow. a year by the time he boarded truman less than two years later he was commanding 20 million a movie and haunted by paparazzi cameras that could be hidden anywhere including carrie's own backyard photographers even followed him to a private resort in antigua when carrie was honeymooning with his then wife lauren holly those were the kinds of things that happened periodically that made me realize, okay, my life will never be the same, said Carrie. It's almost as if celebrities lose their civil rights when they become famous. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> There's great advantages, But too. you actually do get the power to kill a person. <laughs> yeah. that, that's what he's not saying. <laughs> There's great advantages, too. I've certainly been oh, shown... Oh, really? <laughs> certainly <laughs> actually? $20 million a movie. <laughs> I've certainly been shown incredible amounts of loves, but love, but there are certain times uh, when there's just no sympathy for someone who has done well whatsoever. No one is going to cry river for me. Truman too you're, was yes, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Truman too was surrounded by people who were not who they said they were, and dogged by a mass audience taking voyeuristic pleasure in his personal life. After starring in seven studio films in three years, Carey also related to Truman in another way. He wasn't sure whether he could continue on his trajectory or begin leading a life that felt more authentic. The Truman Show would be Carey's first dramatic role, marking the beginning of what he seems to consider a more fulfilling stage of his career. All right, so having set the stage a bit uh, by kind of laying out what the reputation of this film is and what its kind of uh, seemingly two-decade existence as a cultural touchstone has been interpreted and what that's meant to people, I think we can now get into the conceit of the film because everything about this movie that is supposed to be prescient or that is supposed to be satire or social commentary, it's all rooted in what is, you know, the, the famous conceit of The Truman Show. And what Will and I found watching it again is that absolutely nothing about the conceit works the moment you start to think about it. There are so many problems with the way that the world in The Truman Show and the conceit of the of the show itself are imagined that it's unclear what, if anything, this movie is, is saying or is trying to say. It is such an absolute mess from start to finish and when we were about i don't know 30 minutes into the film i think both of us started kind of voicing these criticisms to one another and feeling like we were being a little pedantic but then when we couldn't put that stuff out of our mind an hour later i think we were left with the conclusion that well it actually does matter that nothing about this movie works so let's just start with the most obvious thing which is that nobody would watch this show <laughs> This is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week show that is simply surveillance footage of a man's life. It started when he was zero, and it's been going to—he's 29 now. He's on the cusp of turning 30. Uh, it has followed him every step of the way. 
every step of the way. The camera's running when he's sleeping. The camera's running when he's driving to work, when he's walking to work, when he's going to the bathroom, presumably. They're not episodes. Nothing about it is structured dramatically, except that apparently when dramatic moments do happen, Ed Harris is in the control room ordering them to put dramatic music under certain moments. Yeah, and this is really important, uh, the, the, the role of the Ed Harris character, because we learn partway through the movie that the world of The Truman Show is not some kind of spontaneous order. You know, they haven't cast a bunch of people and said, you know, okay, here's your kind of rough guidelines, go exist in this world for eight hours a day and sort of be a character in it. And then, you know, if you interact with Truman, great. And if you don't, you know, you're just kind of part of the mise-en-scene. That's not how this works. Ed Harris is feeding the character's actual dialogue. Truman's route to work is populated by people that he has the same interactions with every single day. Everything is totally staged and kind of controlled. We see the setup for his walk to work where everybody just starts the day in this static position as if it's like a level in a video game that you haven't quite reached yet. And then when you get there, people start moving in an intricately choreographed way. And yeah, as you say, every day he sees the same people, talks to the same people, banters with the same people in the exact same way on his route. So if you were somebody who watched this show every day, you would basically just see the same show every single day, the same boring show every day. (laughs) Right, well, so this is another thing, right, is... The reality TV comparisons, I don't think work at all because reality TV, the stock kind of complain about it, right? Is that people say, well, it's not reality because people have cameras on them and because they know they have cameras on them, they perform ridiculous acts. They try to become notorious. So what you're seeing is not any kind of genuine social experiment. It's a kind of, you know, hyper reality that's actually very staged and curated. And also every 45 minute episode of a reality TV show is expertly edited and shorn down from hours and hours of footage to shape a story with maximum drama. They set up these whole seasons and they think about what are what are the three or four big dramatic structuring events that are going to change how people interact. And for a lot of the people who love reality TV, part of the pleasure of it is figuring out what's real and what's fake. It's figuring out, like, say, the contestants on The Bachelor, who is there for the right reasons, who's there because they want to be on TV, who actually loves Colton or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, that, that very quality that you're talking talking about the fact that quote-unquote reality tv is staged is the thing that makes it entertaining right like that's how you make good tv you don't make good TV by pointing a camera at somebody for 24 hours a day, where presumably they're, they're going to be sleeping for like, you know, more than a third of that time. This is an Andy Warhol film. <laughs> for, for 24 hours a day. Yeah, and for, and 30, for 30 years. years. I mean, the idea when the movie starts, I mean, Jim Carrey does not look 29. He must have been in his, I don't know, mid to late 30s. But the idea is that the show's been on for roughly 30 years, and people have been watching him grow up. And what is Ed Harris? So I think the character's name is Kristoff, the, the demiurge of this, you know, prescribed reality, you know, what what is his vision? Well, the way he's decided to make really good, compelling TV is what if we showed a kind of uh, bland, middle-class white guy who works as an insurance salesman and is in a, you know, pretty loveless marriage, just every just everything totally average. He goes out the door, he has the same banal conversation with his neighbor every single day, and the entire conceit of the show and, and the movie is set up so that Truman doesn't act independently, he doesn't act spontaneously, and the world doesn't act on him independently or, or spontaneously. The whole point of a reality 
reality TV show is that there are supposed to be surprises. <laughs> like the established order is supposed to be ruptured. Somebody, oh my God, somebody's cheating on somebody. I thought this couple was rock solid, but now you're telling me that Jax is cheating on Brittany? How is that going to affect the whole ecosystem of Sir Restaurant? <laughs> but there's none of that here. Now, there is some suggestion in the dialogue that Ed Harris has created this world as kind of a reactionary political project. This is his this is his Epcot. Like as the world outside has become, you know, crime ridden and morally degraded, he's created an ideal world for an ideal man to flourish. Uh, and and it's it's nice. It's gentle in here. And that's that's what the people who watch this show are really responding to. Uh, I find that hard to believe, though. Yeah, there's a very expository scene, kind of, I don't know, uh, two-thirds of the way through the movie where... The curtain is pulled back, and we as the viewer get to find out how, how does this system work. Yeah, a character played by, a, you know, a TV host played by Harry Shearer interviews Kristoff, the Ed Harris character, who, you know, we learn is, is quite enigmatic, so he rarely, you know, gives interviews. But, you know, various things are revealed in this encounter. So, you know, we learn that the show is hugely profitable, although most of the profit comes through kind of product placement, uh, which is one of the things that's very artificial about the Truman Show is that, you know, various people who, you know, know and love Truman are just inserting, you know, under obviously fraudulent pretexts, these references to various, you know, lawnmowers and, you know, new coffee grounds and things you can buy. But this is how the show makes money. We also learn that there's some kind of dissident movement, you know, there's kind of minority of people who think the show is really unethical. I mean, we learn that Truman himself is the first baby to be owned by a corporation, which does sound pretty unethical to me, I have to say. And as you said, uh, you know, Ed Harris's defense of this is basically that Sea Haven, this, you know, this set where Truman has lived out his entire existence, which was, uh, by the way, was filmed mostly in a planned community somewhere in the Florida panhandle. But his defense of this is that, you know, it's basically utopia. The rest of the world, he says, is sick. And he says, you know, Truman prefers his spell. You know, if he really wanted to leave, you know, we, we, we couldn't actually stop him. But it actually turns out that there's a huge apparatus designed to stop him. Like, and they've been working from his birth to create the conditions that would stop him. So it's like Truman actually doesn't have free will. Right. So this is another thing that doesn't make sense. The Ed Harris character is then asked by Harry Shearer or by somebody who calls in, you know, why is it that Truman only now is starting to question his reality? And Ed Harris replies, well, in the end, you know, we all accept the, the world as it's presented to us. It's as simple as that. But I think this is a good moment to talk about uh, how they present the world to Truman, because again, it doesn't really make any sense. Well, the obvious metaphor here, which is not an effective metaphor, is that we're all Truman. We're all hemmed in by ideology. We're all hemmed in by the constraints of whatever <laughs> norms that we subscribe to to fit into whatever society we think we're living in. But we actually do have some free will. We we in our lives could theoretically cast off the shackles of these norms if we wanted to. But Truman literally cannot. Like when he wants to leave town, they make it so that the bus breaks down. They stage an incident in his childhood where his father drowns on a, on a boat. So he's you know, afraid of water. And of course, the whole town is surrounded by it. I'm reminded, have you ever heard of the Louis Bunuel film, uh, The Exterminating Angel? It's a film from the early 1960s, where it's this bourgeois dinner party, bunch of rich people in a mansion, and they all find that they, they just for some reason can't leave the room that they're in. 
they go to the door and then they get very confused and then they just come back in. And then there's this whole panic of like, well, how do we get these people out? Why aren't they coming out? It's a, it's an absurdist comedy. Like that's a very blunt metaphor, but an effective metaphor for people hemmed in by the society that they've built for themselves. But it's like, it's mystical. Whereas in this movie, what it's saying is uh, the dominant ideology is actually literally at every step of the way stopping you. I haven't seen that Bunuel film, but now that you mention it, it also reminds me of that play, that famous French play, The Bald Soprano. Have you ever seen that? I have not. Haven't seen it for years, but something else that I think is kind of like this, uh, whose satire is much more effective because it embraces absurdism. But to return on this point about uh, the way the Truman Show is structured, I mean, they don't hide the outside world from Truman, right? They're given a carte blanche to conduct, you know, a radical social experiment here where they can literally control not just the day-to-day life of somebody, but I mean, the entire reality. I mean, their moral and ethical compass, their sense of the world outside, their knowledge of geography, their knowledge of culture, all these kind of things. And they don't do that at all. Uh, Truman knows the outside world exists. We learned that uh, when he was a kid, he wanted to be an explorer. This was his lifelong ambition. And they show him a map of the entire world and they say (laughs) everything's been found. But that's what's important. They show him a map. He knows the world's out there. There's a scene where his mother is showing him photographs from his childhood and he's visited Mount Rushmore. Now, that may be a fake memory. It may be a fake Mount Rushmore. He may not have actually visited it. But this brings up other implications. If Mount Rushmore exists in this universe, that means those presidents exist in this universe, which means that the institution of the United States presidency exists in this universe, which makes you wonder, well, do the people in Sea Haven get to vote? Do they follow the current elections? Is Bill Clinton president in this version of 1998 in Sea Haven? Well, yeah, absolutely, because everyone in Sea Haven is an actor. Who's the senator for Sea Haven? <laughs> Again, this is one of the reasons why the conceit doesn't work, because for it to work, you know, Sea Haven and Truman's world would have to be kind of spontaneous. It couldn't be entirely, you know, staged and planned. And what we learn from kind of Truman's gradual discovery that he's living in, you know, a false reality is that absolutely everything is staged right down to the traffic. It's all staged around his behavior. This, I think, brings me to what might be my most pedantic criticism of the film uh, of all of them. Oh, hit me. But I, <laughs> I really have to get this off my chest. The whole conceit of the movie and the foundation for all of the pacing is that everything about this world has basically worked, you know, for the 30 years before we step in, you know, before our story begins. We learn that there have been a couple incidents where various people have tried to kind of disrupt the mainframe, you know, break the algorithm. You know, when Truman was a kid, somebody jumped out of a present at Christmas and was like, Truman, you're on TV. There was a a young woman who Truman was attracted to in high school, which it's hilarious for that scene. They just cast Jim Carrey, like, does not look like he belongs in high school, like not even a little bit but he he becomes attracted to her but you know the showrunners have decided that well no laura linney's gonna be your high school sweetheart and then later your wife so they basically you know impose a wife on him but then this other woman who reciprocates the attraction basically takes him to a beach and is trying to tell him everything that's going on and she's you know dragged away by you know a stranger who shows up in a car and then truman does nothing about it which is pretty funny but basically everything is worked Truman buys that he lives the life that's been set out for him. But then all of a sudden, we're supposed to believe these cracks start to appear. And there's no, you know, really greater reason for why they appear. I mean, the the real catalyzing incident is that he just runs into his father, who he thinks is drowned many years ago. But things start to break down before that. I mean, right in one of the very earliest scenes, he's about to get in his car, and then this light falls from the sky and breaks, and it's like a studio light. And, you know, they cover it up by when he 
he's, you know, driving to work on the radio, uh, you know, they concoct a news story about, well, you know, a plane broke up over Sea Haven and all the parts fell out. God, that means this whole world is lit by studio lights. <laughs> Think about how many lights you would have to have in the rafters of this big dome to light this world. I mean, Jesus, the amount of resources that go into creating the Truman Show. Well, I thought I was going to be the most pedantic here, but I think you've taken us into a further realm of pedantry, which kudos, I mean, we might as well at this point. But so we learn from these, you know, various hiccups, that, and there's, you know, a bunch more, I'm not going to list them all, that the people who make the show are actually not perfect at executing their jobs. Like there are variables that it seems like they can't control. And so these hiccups occur. And yet the film beats us over the head again and again with the idea that they actually have total control over everything that happens here. There's a scene, for example, when Truman starts to suspect that something, you know, something's wrong in the world. He says goodbye to his wife, who's, a, I guess, a doctor or a nurse, and she's going, you know, she's biking off to work in the morning. Unbeknownst to her, he starts following her. He follows her all the way to the hospital, which, like, we see the town. It's not very big, so he can't have had very far to travel. Yeah, why do they even need cars in this town? <laughs> it's so small. All right, I guess the game is just how pedantic can yeah. we get now? <laughs> I promise we'll come to a real point about the movie in a little bit. But Truman gets to the hospital and they have such a level of control and everything is so staged that, you know, there's a whole cast of people, even though no one had any idea that he was going to do this. Somehow this world is so controlled that there's a whole cast of people like playing nurses, playing janitors in the hospital. But it's not a real hospital either. They're just actors. So they sort of fake doing a surgery there, which raises questions to me about how does this society function? Because you've got people living in Truman land in this big in this big dome year round every day seven days a week always on call presumably you would have to have some sort of society which means you would have to have a hospital you would have to have a school for the kids who are inevitably born in this Truman land universe you would have to have some sort of public transportation but we're apparently told that all these things are fake well the idea I think is that most of these people you know this is just their their workplace and they just kind of you know go home through like a secret door or something every day now who knows imagine the commute going from that dome in the hollywood hills to wherever they live of course that doesn't account for uh you know the people who are kind of you know the the main characters i mean the film kind of brushes past this but i mean the laura linney character his wife i mean she's literally married to him i mean she's literally married to him so they, they have sex they have sex on camera so that would have had to be part of her contract she's been on the show for something like i don't know 15 years or something like that meanwhile truman's mother is also part of the show so she's presumably been there since the very beginning so it's like a 30-year commitment on her part and presumably if she's playing his mother he would talk to her pretty regularly and she wouldn't be able to like go home to a separate place like outside of all this and so the question is <laughs> what do these actors get out of it in the opening minutes of the film you see an interview with the laura linney character being like oh you know my my art is my life and uh the truman show is a way of life and it's an honorable way of life but sorry uh my life is my art too as a podcaster and then when we turn off the podcast i get to go home for the rest of the day <laughs> And the people on reality TV, yeah, they're on camera a lot. Yeah, they're, they're monetizing their life, but there's also some incentive like, well, you get to be famous. You get chips from being in this that you could cash in through like endorsement deals or through a large Instagram following. Or maybe, maybe if you're really lucky, you get to be an actor in a movie because people saw you on reality TV. But there are no such benefits for the people who are close to Truman. And then also, what would it be like being an extra on the Truman Show for year after year? Because there are people in this town who are just extras in this world who never interact with them. Imagine being somebody who spends 
seven days a week. <laughs> you, you're you're a janitor. You're a janitor at that hospital, and you're, or there's a lady who uh, works at a travel agency. Which like has that has Truman ever been to this travel agency before that one scene? Did she dedicate twenty years of her life to being the travel agent who just has to sit there? Were they paying her to be there for eight hours a day while this fake travel agency was open? Okay, I want to pause on the travel agency because it makes no sense. That the travel agency is there again. Ed Harris has created this world that is entirely designed to make Truman not leave it. And so if you're designing a world like that, you want to eliminate any suggestion that he can leave. Right. Having the travel agent office just so that he can go there to be turned down. All it does is plant the seed in his head. What if what if I left? Because what what they do is instead of yeah, instead of just enclosing the reality further so that he would never think these thoughts, they they create a travel agency, which yeah, again, what was that lady doing for, you know, the 20 years before he happened to decide on a whim one day to come in. But then when he goes in, the travel agency has all these posters that are like warning about like plane crashes and they say like, this could happen to you. Or then when he's watching TV, you know, he's watching I Love Lucy, which I guess exists in this world as well. And then, you know, he sees an ad or something where some psychiatrist or something like that, some expert, some MD is talking about how, you know, venturing outside of, you know, your your home and the familiar is actually really unhealthy and you don't need to do it. By the way, he gets I Love Lucy, so he gets culture from the 50s. And when we see them dancing at their high school dance, and it's like music that sounds like Chuck Berry or something, like, do they only get culture up to when the Truman Show started? Because presumably, like, the Truman Show is, in this universe, the biggest show on TV. Everybody's watching. For some reason, everybody in the real world is watching the Truman Show. But then show. when they watch it, and it's like the 90s, they're just watching him watch I Love Lucy. <laughs> what compelling talk? That's like the world's shittiest mystery science theater <laughs> just watching a man watch i love lucy uh but presumably the culture that's being generated in the real world like if if truman got the tonight show with jay leno in the truman show world he would hear references to himself because he's the biggest tv show ever so does he i guess he just doesn't get that right well, they must curate the reality somewhat. And maybe part of the way they do that is, you know, they keep culture frozen in like the 50s or 60s or something. Or what if they have their own parallel cultural <laughs> industry inside the Truman Show? Like, what if they have shows that they make only for Truman? Yeah, it's it's actually an early experiment in the metaverse. The, the film is prescient. How are you, Truman? Vital signs are good. <laughs> Lights. Cue the sign. Camera. Yeah! Hey, Truman! Sorry, can't stop! Say something. You're on television. You're live to the whole world. That's amazing. Jim Carrey is Truman Burbank. Wanna do it again? In the movie Newsweek called the number one film to see this summer. It's the miracle! The Truman Show, rated PG. In theaters everywhere, Friday, June 5th. Okay, well, you know, again, there was a whole city to sack. We had to get all these pedantic criticisms off our chest. And I could go on for another 40 <laughs> minutes. The, the fact is, none of the questions we just asked matter because none of it actually makes sense. It's a totally incoherent mess. But just to reiterate two basic points, I mean, the film's reputation, it seems to me, hinges on it being prescient about uh, reality TV and it being prescient about social media. And I don't think it actually works on any level when it comes to either of those things. Because what's distinctive about both of those things is the fact that that they involve not only a camera and people broadcasting their lives, but also the involvement of the person, the active and consensual involvement of the person whose lives are being broadcast. That doesn't work for the Truman Show at all, because everyone in the world is an actor, and they all know this, and Truman doesn't know that he's on a set. So having teed all that up, Will, I think this is the part of the episode where we need to start talking about 
what, if anything, the satire in this film, the social commentary, whatever, what, what is it? What is going on here? What is the film trying to do? I have some thoughts on this. I'm curious what you think. It's a good question. I mean, I, I, the, the long and short of it is I don't know. All those cutaways to people watching the Truman Show, including the last image of the movie, which is uh, when, spoiler alert, Truman frees himself from this world. <laughs> it cuts to these two parking garage attendants who have been watching, and they're like, well, I wonder what else is on, which is a searing indictment of us, the viewer, <laughs> us who are living our lives through these images on TV and not getting out there and uh, and breaking free from our own Truman shows. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, there's also one of the key scenes in the movie is the scene right before that where Truman has conquered his fear of water. He sailed to the very edge of Trumanverse. He finds the staircase to the exit. And then the voice of Ed Harris speaks to him and says, well, you know, you could you could leave the cave or you could stay here looking at the shadows on the wall. We've built a beautiful world for you, a perfect world. We all love you here, Truman. <laughs> yeah, th this is his red pill, blue pill moment. <laughs> yeah, this, this is where he has free will. And, and Except Ed Harris is the Matrix rather than Morpheus. Okay, but, but that is what this is. And this is part of a number of movies from the late 90s. Fight Club, The Matrix, Dark, Dark City, City, Cube, uh, American Beauty. Beauty to a lesser degree. Mm -hmm. All of these movies are about picking the red pill. But you know, the Matrix understands what the blue pill is. And this movie, this movie doesn't <laughs> understand it. It's like, <laughs> the blue pill represents this fake ideology that we subscribe to. But what is the ideology well, of the, the Truman Show? Right, well, the ideology is just, you know, I don't know, middle class, liberal, bourgeois America, but he steps outside of the false reality. And it's like, how qualitatively different is the world from what he was existing in already? I, I mean, as we've been saying, they didn't make the world fundamentally different from, you know, the world at large they just made it a sort of blandly idyllic middle class existence you know it's not a utopia ed harris talks about how you know the world around us is going downhill and i've created a wonderful beautiful reality in in my truman land and I think the movie could have worked that dichotomy more. It could have shown us the dystopia outside Truman Land. I mean, I'm not saying it would be good, but it would make more sense conceptually if outside Truman Land we found out everybody's so unhappy out here. Everybody, well, right? In the Matrix, it's like there's been a nuclear holocaust. Well, yeah, it's like there... <laughs> that's why the Matrix exists. <laughs> and, and like and the choice isn't so powerful at the end when Truman goes out into the real world and it's just just the same world. It's not like this radical choice that he's made in fact it's like it's the perfect choice because okay you mean i get to have the exact same world and i don't have to be on tv without my consent all day well of course i'll take the fucking red pill if that's the choice <laughs> well and, and just to return to being pedantic for a sec i mean okay let's take seriously the idea that truman steps outside into the real world a, a swat team doesn't come and take him down because he's legally owned by a corporation yeah yeah okay let's let's assume that doesn't happen and he gets to just exist Okay, so this is a man who literally the entire world has seen every waking moment <laughs> of his life. This would be like, you know, the various people who've had their lives destroyed by social media or by accidentally becoming, you know, memes or whatever without their consent. This is that to the power of 10 million. Like, this is bigger than Star Wars Kid. This makes Christian look like an ant. This guy has had the entire world watching him be born, watching him go to the bathroom, watching him live through every embarrassing moment, watching him have sex, which, by the way, the film just kind of like brushes that aside by showing the two, uh, you know, security guards or whatever, being like, ah, you don't see anything. It's all dark. So in real life, Truman would just be driven uh, completely mad, completely insane. 
there are two things we ultimately need to kind of hone in on here. If we're to unpack at all what the film's, uh, you know, satire or commentary is trying to be. And you've just alluded to both of them. One is the audience reactions outside, you know, periodically through the movie, we see, you know, there's this massive sprawling global fan culture, all these people reacting to the Truman Show, you know, it's become a part of their lives, they're very invested in it, etc. Until it ends, in which case, you know, they immediately become fickle, and they all just like, you know, move on to the next thing. The next fad. The other thing... The next fad. This has been going on for 30 years. <laughs> it seems the American public actually does have an attention span. But the other thing is Truman's arc... You How know, it, fucking dare this movie suggest that the American public is fickle when it when it's established that they've been sitting around for 30 years watching this man drive to work, and then when the show is clearly over, they decide to watch something yeah, else. Yeah, they've been watching a 30-year version of Andy Warhol's Empire State Building movie, which is you know just that single shot of the Empire State Building for nine hours yeah, or whatever. I, 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 I mean, seriously, how dare? Of course they're going to change the channel. The show's over. <laughs> but so the audience, that's one thing. The other thing is Truman's own arc, right? Because we learn that in this prescribed reality, you know, the, the it's it's keeping him down, you know? It's imposing a wife on him from high school onwards, whereas, you know, he actually was more attracted to someone else that he just happened to see for, you know, 30 seconds once. And uh, we also learn as a kid, I mean, these are like the only two uh, character points we have for Truman as a whole. Uh, as a kid, he wanted to be an explorer, but, you know, they, they didn't they didn't want to let him. And the world threw up every barrier to stop him, you know, realizing his dream of going to Fiji and, you know, traveling outside of this small uh, fake seaside town that looks like it has about, you know, I don't know, 5,000 people living in it. Now, I raise these two things, Truman's arc and, you know, the audience reactions within the Truman Show, because I think they're really the only things left standing. I mean, everything else is a kind of possible foundation for satire or social commentary, I feel like uh, just falls apart right away. I mean, it can't be about reality TV or, you know, social media. It can't be predicting those things, I don't think. If it was trying to, I don't think it has anything meaningful to say about them. So these are the only two things we have left. And with that in mind, I want to say that I don't think there's anything interesting about either of these things. I don't think there's anything really interesting going on here either. If the point is that Truman's liberation from this false reality, you know, there's, you know, the final scene is kind of symbolic, right? He, he breaks down the barrier. He transgresses against the false ideology, the false reality that's been imposed on him by, you know, getting on a boat and you know, going off into the unknown, the thing that, you know, they didn't want him to do and getting out of the real world where, you know, he can finally go to Fiji and, you know, maybe he can, you know, choose a partner voluntarily. He can engage in relationships that he's chosen that aren't with actors. He can hit up the convention circuit and make a living <laughs> signing autographs for the fans. Yeah, and then probably just becoming like a vlogger. Like he would find out, he would probably get out there and he'd find that he he actually couldn't make a living because he, you know, he couldn't actually work as an insurance salesman. And then he would just start vlogging his own life and it would be like, you know, the Truman Show 2.0. Everyone would watch it and it'd be way better than the original Truman Show because it would just be about like one man's disintegration. But so if that's the point of the movie, what is the takeaway? It's like, ah, you know, when you think about it, we're all trapped in this kind of uh, antiseptic, you know, sanitized, white picket fence, middle class existence. And what if we're allowed to do really exciting things like go on a boat and travel <laughs> to other other places? 
I mean, it's it's totally toothless. Like, there's there's nothing there. Unless you just project something onto it. Almost in spite of the movie, you project whatever you want onto it. It could be about uh, embracing your true sexual identity. It could be about quitting the job you hate. It could be about deciding that you're not going to stay in Ontario. Instead, you're going to go to the U.S. and you're going to join the cast of In Living Color and you're going to be uh, the biggest comedy movie star in the world. Right, and all of those would be better movies, but I don't think that's, that's what this not, movie is what, about. That's not what this is, no. <laughs> But so that leaves us with the audience reactions, which I think are really, you know, are really integral because they punctuate the film. And they also, as you said, make up the final shot of the film. With this in mind, I want to read a little bit from a review by a friend of the show, Jonathan Rosenbaum. He reviewed The Truman Show on June 4th, 1998 in a review called The Audience Is Us. It had a uh, two asterisk rating. I guess those are stars. It's an old website, uh, which means worth seeing. But Rosenbaum's basic take on whether the movie is good or bad, uh, I kind of like it. He says, it's undeniably provocative and reasonably entertaining. The Truman Show is one of those high concept movies whose concept is both clever and dumb. And I think that's about right. I mean, I want to say, I I don't exactly think this movie is bad. I kind of do, but go ahead. (laughs) I mean, it's not good, but it's like we've been sitting on it for more than 20 years, and I feel like it just has this huge reputation. And then, you know, we finally sat down to watch it. And yeah, it's kind of high concept, but, you know, you prick the concept just a tiny little bit, and the whole thing just sort of falls apart. Maybe Rosenbaum is giving it too much credit by calling it clever. Now, I want to say in our defense, because I realize we have spent a lot of this episode just like engaged in the most pedantic bullshit criticisms of this movie. You know, finally, finally, two courageous voices stepped up to take the Truman Show (laughs) down a notch. I hope those of you listening from the Jacobin radio feed especially appreciate having the sandwich between all the other shows where they're talking about stuff that definitely isn't the Truman Show. Anyway, uh, in our defense, Rosenbaum does spend part of his review uh, pointing out that the conceit of the movie kind of doesn't work. He says, uh, the cleverness starts to look dumb as soon as one tries to imagine the concept stretched any further than the movie stretches it. If for the past three decades, millions of viewers across the globe have been following Truman's life with some regularity, presumably taking time off to live their own lives, how many of them have stayed tuned to his dark bedroom during the hours he sleeps at night? There's a bit of dialogue to suggest that it's hard to see much of his sex life in the darkness, but what about the rest of his time in bed? We know there's a camera planted behind his bathroom mirror at home, but do viewers get to see him whenever he takes a piss or crap? And if not, what does the camera focus on in the meantime? Given the number of undramatic moments that fill Truman's daily life, are we supposed to believe that millions of spectators, a few of whom we see at regular intervals, are taking all of this in? Or are they watching merely occasional random slices of Truman's mainly humdrum existence? And if the latter, how do they know when the good bits will happen? In other words, the concept starts to fall apart as soon as you stop to think about it. Just as Truman's 29-year fantasy that he's living in the real world, world starts to fall apart as soon as he stops to think about it. However, if if you decide to see this movie as an allegory rather than as a sci-fi construction, and the respectful tone of many reviewers suggests this is precisely how they see it, even if they don't say so, then you might choose to overlook the flimsiness of the plot. After all, if The Truman Show is saying something about the phoniness of our lives and our culture, especially since few Hollywood movies ever broach such a topic, isn't that reason enough to go along with its premise? Now, Rosenbaum goes on to kind of pick that apart a bit. He says, I have my doubts because the conceit is predicated on the assumption that the TV audience is a pack of blathering idiots. Everyone, that is, except you and me and a few other media-savvy commentators. Far from being a visionary, he writes, or original notion, this is one of the rude assumptions of our mass culture. And if we're all living inside the same bad TV show, what else could the Truman Show be saying? It's merely confirming the message. 
And this is where I think Rosenbaum uh, really starts to get at the truth of what, if anything, this movie is actually saying. And what it's saying, frankly, not being particularly original, not being very good, and certainly not being as kind of uh, transgressive or prescient or high concept as the film's reputation would suggest. One of his major takeaways, which I think after watching the film again, I agree with, is that the film is actually channeling a sort of very bland and, and, and smug and kind of elitist view of mass culture. Skipping ahead a bit, he writes, A logical conclusion is that our cultural options really are as threadbare as mass culture keeps saying they are because we're all blithering idiots. Skipping ahead a little further, he continues, This same sort of underlying contempt for the American public can be found in most places where cultural decisions are being made. It's the standard media position right now. Don't blame yourself or your editor or producer or agent or studio or network. Blame the audience, which is supposedly calling all the shots. By this reasoning, Kristoff is a holy seer and his flock consists of a planet full of jerks. It's a characteristic form of contemporary doublethink. The public is disparaged for enjoying stupidity and the media savvy instigator of that stupidity is declared a genius. What do we see of the TV audience in the Truman show. A couple of waitresses at a bar surrounded by customers, a couple of old ladies on a sofa with a Truman sampler cushion, grotesque creatures who it suggested might be lesbians, a geek splashing around in a bathtub, a few Japanese spectators gawking and gesticulating, a few members of Kristoff's crew, Kristoff himself. They're supposed to represent us, the real world, not the artificial and phony world of Seahaven. But apart from the film's bland gestures of affection towards the waitresses and the preternatural awe it expresses for Kristoff, it's a world plainly unworthy of redemption. So with that in mind, I want to suggest that this movie belongs in an expanding canon of films that count among, well, not my favorite films, but my, my favorite films within the world of our show, namely movies, political or otherwise, that purport to be very high concept, that purport to be very transgressive, and end up just kind of channeling ambient sort of small c conservative beliefs about the societies that they purport to be commenting on. And furthermore, often have conceits that, you know, as soon as you start to think about them, don't actually work at all. So, you know, one of my favorite movies we ever watched for the podcast was that Robin Williams movie, Man of the Year, right? Where the high concept is, what if Jon Stewart, what if a comedian became the president? And then you find out in the final act that actually there was some like computer mix up in the in this new electronic, you know, balloting system. And actually he never got elected president. So the film like undermines its the own conceit. Works. <laughs> yeah. And then Robin Williams makes like a confession, you know, with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, where he's like, ah, you know, as a comedian, my job is to, you know, prod the bastards once in a while, but just, you know, let the grownups actually, you know, sort things out. As Obama said to Bernie, uh, you're a prophet and prophets don't become king. <laughs> But that, I think, is fundamentally what The Truman Show is. For all of the way its, uh, its reputation, I think, upon coming out and since, has suggested, you know, that it had a lot to say about things which were actually still nascent and hadn't even really, you know, happened yet. You know, reality TV was just sort of getting going. You know, social media didn't exist yet. I'm not convinced this film is really about those things at all or has anything to say about them. I think The Truman Show is just a warmed over version of a pretty generic complaint that has been made about, you know, television, but also just mass media in general, probably since the radio was invented. And I'm sure there was even a version version of it before, which is basically, you know, hey, the culture sucks, but isn't that ultimately a reflection of the fact that most people are dumb and, you know, democratic societies are, are decadent? So despite everything, would we actually be better off in the hands of Ed Harris's benevolent ruler? <laughs> we fools and rubes watching his show? Well, no, because the false reality of middle-class America, white picket fences, etc., is keeping us down. It's holding back true liberation by preventing us from fulfilling our dreams, uh, in this case, to be able to go on a boat. There's a whole lot of people dying tonight from the disease of conceit.
crying tonight from the disease of conceit. Comes right out of nowhere, and you're down by the count. From the outside world, the pressure we amount. Turn you into a piece of meat, the disease of conceit. Conceit is a disease That the doctors got no cure They've done a lot of research on it But what it is they're still not sure There's a whole lot of people in trouble tonight From the disease of conceit A whole lot of people seeing double tonight From the disease of conceit 